Welcome to the show, everyone. This episode's interview was recorded before we saw the results of the 2020 presidential election. Unless Donald Trump and his administration is able to pull off some sort of historic political and courtside shenanigans, the results clearly indicate that Joe Biden will be our next president. We saw the approval of California's Proposition 24, or the California Privacy Rights Act, which I will talk about in this episode's News Corner. We also saw Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, and South Dakota pass their adult-use recreational cannabis laws, and Oregon went as far as decriminalizing possession of heroin, methamphetamine, LSD, oxycodone, and other hard drugs. Hopefully, these approved laws will bring us closer to reforming our current harsh federal drug laws. I have plenty of opinions on the war on drugs, so if you're interested, I encourage you to reach out to me on my website, LinkedIn, or Telegram. In today's episode, I speak to Ben Taylor, CEO of Ledger Domain, which was founded in 2016 to bring blockchain solutions to enterprise ecosystems. Ben has spent a quarter of a century incubating and investing in early-stage technology companies. In partnership with the Clinical Supply Blockchain Working Group, Ledger Domain developed the world's first iOS blockchain app for the clinical supply chain. As part of the FDA's DSCSA pilot project program, Ledger Domain partnered with UCLA Health to deploy a last-mile application that helped deliver life-saving medications at one of the busiest hospitals in the U.S. Ben is also one of the amazing speakers presenting at the IEEE virtual series on blockchain and AI. I've included a link to his presentation on blockchain and vaccine supply assurance that was published on November 4th, 2020. If you haven't already registered for the healthcare virtual series, check out the link in the show notes to sign up for the next event happening on December 2nd. There's also a bunch of great resources available on the IEEE series website. Again, thank you all for joining, and now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Ben Taylor, CEO of Ledger Domain, which was founded in 2016 to develop enterprise-grade blockchain solutions. We are going to discuss some of the ways Ben's company has been working on next-generation technology for improving the pharmaceutical supply chain industry, including their Drug Supply Chain Security Act pilot with the UCLA Health. Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Fantastic, Ray. Thanks for asking. I'd love for you to kind of give some context to the audience. So if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit more about your, or a little bit about your background, uh, meaning like your early career, how you got here so far. Well, Ray, like you, I had some time at MIT stomping grounds up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, I think you're still up that way, but I've moved across the country in the meantime, but with a 25-year stopover in uh, canyons of Wall Street. Um, <laughs> and I am still here. I'm sure it's changed a lot since then as well. But um, I like to get back there. It has changed a lot, and it's a lot nicer than it used to be, but everything is. So I've heard. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so I spent 25 years on Wall Street uh, focusing on technology and software and uh, I always built my own trading systems. 
And around 2010, uh, I started getting beat. Um, the other people's robots, the other people's algorithms were faster than mine. Um, and I knew I had to do a deep dive on technology and try to figure out where things were going. And over the next few years, I spent a lot of time thinking about a variety of ideas, but blockchain kept bubbling up. And at the end of the day, what I decided was that blockchain was probably not going to solve my problems on Wall Street. Um, but what it was was an incredible platform, an incredible set of tooling for the main street to be able to take advantage of all of the things that we're used to on Wall Street and present that kind of interface to everybody who wants to collaborate, transact, and trade anonymously uh, in a whole variety of markets. And that's what you know led us to launch Ledger Domain. So tell me a little bit more about how you actually first heard about blockchain technology. You said you know, you were looking into it 2010 and a few years after that, but what was, was there a story behind it? Yeah, a friend of mine was still at MIT then. He was an undergraduate. And he got in a bit of a jam on a homework assignment. Um, and the New Jersey State Attorney General went after him for uh, interstate banking, amazingly. Um, and so I picked up the phone to see if I could be helpful since I lived in that area and I had some contacts. And of course, it, it all worked itself out, thank God. Um, but along the way, he told me an amazing story about his work on Bitcoin. Uh, and I didn't get the Bitcoin bug. In part, I felt that uh, these currencies were probably not going to be seen favorably by people I was working with on Wall Street and my regulator in hmm. particular. And so I focused on the blockchain technology side of it. And that's where I sort of went down the path. But yeah, serendipity. So when you first started Ledger Domain, what was the vision for the company? Because my understanding was that it wasn't initially going into the healthcare space or even the pharma supply chain space. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of us probably still are fighting this issue of privacy preservation and the right to be forgotten that GDPR uh, enabled the Europeans and is now coming over to Cal privacy side. And so many, many of the big companies that were getting involved in blockchain, IBM and other people were really focused on this idea of blockchain as a service and this idea of an unerasable, immutable database. Uh, and they wanted to go out and do something a la AWS. Um, and then, you know, the, Europe passed this GDPR thing. And we don't like to talk about it, but it blew a hole below the waterline for many blockchain strategies. Um, fortunately for us, um, we were still working on our tooling at that point. We hadn't focused on our end markets, but we knew we had to regroup quickly. Um, and so our team built an entirely different approach to unplugging from the blockchain. So the idea is that we were only going to put the hashes, as it were, on the blockchain, which are sort of your secret code, and then your really sensitive information was going to be held off the blockchain. In the Hyperledger world, they called that private collections originally. But whatever it is, you've got to have a technique to manage this process. The good news um, about that, the upside, was that it allowed the blockchains to run a lot faster. The bad news is if you'd poured a lot of money into this blockchain as a service model, you really had to start from scratch. And I think that's 
been a struggle for a lot of the bigger players who got an early start. They're the pioneers with the arrows in their back. For us, though, as we sort of focused on this GDPR, privacy preserving, HIPAA, these other rules, and we started looking at markets where the data science was already relatively set, we saw more and more opportunity in healthcare. My wife was a 30-year employee of Pfizer at the time, and I started talking to them about their needs, and that's how we really got going down this path. And I think that despite the fact that healthcare has a bit of a reputation as being a slow adopter um, compared to certain other industries, I would say that um, you know they've really been very persistent in their mission to try to find new privacy-preserving technologies um, and very persistent in uncovering the ways that blockchain might work for them. And they've been a tremendous pleasure to work with in that regard. Uh, they've got a longer cycle view, which fits our style. Yeah, and it's quite interesting. I know Ledger Domain is also a charter member of the Clinical Supply Blockchain Working Group. And this initiative includes Pfizer and Biogen, Glaxo, SmithKline, Merck, UPS, UCLA Health, IQVIA, and, and many others. So I think that's really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of this working group? Yeah, I would give probably Pfizer the most credit for getting the ball rolling originally. Um, they were uh, sponsored on site at their premises um, you know, I believe it was fall of 2017 in Cambridge, Mass., just up the street from you, um, a very wide-ranging set of discussions on how blockchain might be used in the pharmaceutical industry. And, and they arrived at five work streams that they felt could be particularly beneficial. And like so many ventures, I think many of those work streams puttered out in one way or another. But I think we all learned something from it. And we pick the clinical supply area. And I think almost everybody's got some familiarity with this from the unfortunate aspects of the COVID pandemic. Hmm. But, you know, let's just review what the basic proposition is. You're a drug company. They call that a sponsor. And you would like to bring a new drug to market. Typically, what you need to do is to make a comparison between your new drug and the existing standard of care, old drug or placebo. So you're going to put perhaps somebody on the order of half the people in the, on the new drug and half the people on the old drug. But they're not supposed to know which one they're on. And neither is their doctor in a perfect world. So how do you keep all this stuff straight, right? You need to be able to keep track of all these hidden A's and B's and who's getting what, when, and what happens if somebody doesn't feel well, and how do we keep track of all these things? And so... The blockchain is, was a great way to be able to show each person what they needed to know and to keep private the stuff that they didn't need to know. And so that's how we went down the path. And to Pfizer's credit, um, they got a wide variety of stakeholders involved, as you mentioned. Um, and not just, you know, so many of these trade groups tend to um, be a little bit clubby. But in this case, they really did get all the stakeholders around the table. They got vendors and solution providers like us. As you noted, they had IQVIA, who is a big uh, clinical research organization. Um, they had UPS, you know, who's moving the boxes around. So a little bit of everybody. And you know what? When you get all the voices in the room, 
you can really figure out what you need to know. And the most important thing I'll stress for the viewers is that blockchain to be really, really great needs great data science. Mm -hmm. And so every industry vertical has its own special sauce. And it's not just how long is the field, whether it's alphanumeric or not, but how often is it pulled and is it secret? Does it need to be, you know, privacy preserved? All these features that go with the data science are critical to getting the system right. And that's where the Clinical Supply Blockchain Working Group made a really big dent uh, in the universe of clinical supply, which was they got the data science right. Now, you know, we're all working, each one of us in our own way, to sort of further our own efforts as sort of frenemies and friends and partners and whatever to try to take the next step. But we all have a sense of what the data science should look like so we can go back to merging these things in the next generation of tools. Interesting. You mentioned COVID and the impact that might have right now on the supply chain, pharma supply chain network and industry. Uh, what would you say is the impact of COVID-19? And I know this is evolving and it continues to evolve, but what would you say is the current state of the supply chain in pharma after COVID? You know, what I would say is that the good news about COVID is that, you know, it's kind of united everybody a little bit. And I think some of the games and the hoarding that we might have seen otherwise, hopefully we're seeing less of. But clearly the supply chain um, has a less than stellar record when it comes to hoarding, when it comes to out of stock. Um, and I think everybody knows that. I had a great series of meetings at FDA um, earlier this year. They were really on top of things. They were way ahead of the curve before the general public was aware of this. And they're very, very focused on both what they call the API side, which is the ingredients that are going into drugs, maybe coming from perhaps China or India, all the way through to finished product, all the way to, you know, managing recalls and everything else. The, the agency is a, a very, very active participant. And so, but that being said, you know, the tooling is still a little bit out of date. Um, and so, you know, again, great group of people at FDA and all the industry players are working very hard on this. Fortunately, the DSCSA, as it's called, which is the Drug Supply Chain Security Act, uh, was passed in, you know, some years ago, uh, almost 10 now. And a lot of the building blocks have been put into place to bring more modern tools uh, into this area. And I think we've been working in this area, but we're not alone. There's a lot of people. There were 19 FDA pilots all told. Uh, and so all the tools are there. To your point, uh, I kind of hope that we cure COVID before we're able to implement all these tools. Hmm. Uh, but right at this time, uh, I would tell you that we better get all the tools to, to work that we have because it looks like we're going to need them. Yeah. And actually that brings up a interesting question that one of my listeners submitted uh, for this interview. They said, what's your take on the impact of the recent FDA delay uh, who said that they do not intend to take action against wholesale distributors who do not prior to November 27th, 2023, uh, who do not verify the product identifier prior to further distributing return product as required under this new act. Um, so yeah. there's a delay from you know, from the FDA, how does that impact competition in the space? What's your take? 
I mean, I think it will hurt competition in the space. I think that a lot of the bigger and littler companies uh, that have invested a lot to try to help these companies are probably going to suffer. So that's unfortunate. But, you know, that's capitalism at work. Mm-hmm. Um, my sense is as follows. I don't think the FDA is letting anybody off the hook. And so the way I would have you think about it is that what they've said is they're not going to set up speed traps. It doesn't mean there's not going to be any speeding tickets. Hmm. And so if you've got a counterfeit drug, if you've got a suspect drug, if you've got a problem drug, you still need to report it. And the channels for reporting it um, are clear. And you need to trace it once you've reported it. And maybe the tracing tools you're off the hook on implementing some fancier ones, like the ones from Ledger Domain, that would make your job a lot easier, but you're gonna have to do it. You know, I don't think there is any doubt about that. Um, And so I think what the agency's saying is, you know, maybe if you're uh, a wholesaler, you won't have, you know, them come in and audit you on a proactive basis over the next three years on that particular topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like so many of the things in the area of enforcement, you know, if the policeman pulls you over and he sees something sitting in your, in the passenger side seat, you know, he's going to follow up on it. Um, and I think everybody knows that. I mean, the FDA is a very diligent group and just because they're not going to proactively do something doesn't mean they're not going to, you know, take it, you know, t- enforce it when they see it. Okay. Fair enough. Another, I'd also add one other thing. Uh, I, I think that... You know, obviously, the current administration mm-hmm. uh, is a little bit more relaxed about regulation. I think this is something that they would see as a positive. Um, I think that the next administration uh, might have a different view about how uh, regulators enforce. Fair enough. So just to get a sense of the company Ledger Domain, I know you're you know heavy involvement in the pharma supply chain area. Is there other activities or industries you're actively working in? Yes. I I mean, we have a lot of companies that are interested in our tooling uh, across a variety of industries. We try to focus our messaging around healthcare because we've made the most progress there Mm -hmm. and we've got the most, um, you know, it's, it requires the most public approach. And so clearly the way to think about it is that the pharma industry the biggest player, whether you decide it's J&J or Pfizer or one of these guys, um, they're really just a 6% market share player, mm-hmm. uh, which most people don't really appreciate. And so when you think about serving the pharma industry or anything in healthcare, it's an incredibly fragmented area. And so you need to have a little bit more of a public facing view if you're going to be a solution provider, because you've got to get everybody to work together. True. That makes sense. In, yeah, in other areas that we serve, um, you know, it, whether it's airframes or another area like that, you know, if you've got Boeing or Airbus, or if you're serving Google, or if you're serving Lululemon, you know, it's a little bit different. You know, uh, you're still focused a little bit more on a smaller group. But with healthcare, you really got to work with everybody, and it is a truly global business. That's right. I, I would agree that optics in healthcare is extremely important for any, you know, business development venture. Um, yeah. And so I know we're say, very proud of our work there as well. So, you know, it's, I think it's, a, 
it's a great example of what we'd like to be doing. We feel like we're helping people. Um, and so it, it's very uh, uh, satisfying for us to talk about. Absolutely. So would you say it's like an 80, 20, 80% healthcare focus, 20% other industries? That's That's probably about right. Okay, very cool. So there's this concept of the last mile in the pharma supply chain industry. Can you just explain what that means to folks listening? Yeah, I mean, I think what we called it the last mile before we even saw the data from the other FDA pilots, but now it really is really reinforced the following thing. So way to think about any of these networks is that you start out in the Merck warehouse and it's fair to say that they feel good that all of the drug in the work warehouse is Merck drug. I mean, how else would have anybody else gotten there? Right. And so when you're thinking about the first mile on the supply chain, you have a tremendous amount of control over what's going on. Merck knows it's all Merck drug. It's Merck employees. Everything is all good, all singing, all dancing. <laughs> Everybody's coordinated. However, in any one of these supply chains, every time you make a move, and they suggest that many drug supply chains are nine steps. That seems like a lot, but let's say it's even four steps. Every time there's a step, there's an opportunity to introduce an error. Mm -hmm. And some people call that the tail of the whip or the bullwhip effect or something else. But essentially, the idea is you imagine as you go down, it gets worse and worse and worse and messier and messier and messier. What we were surprised by when we saw the other FDA pilots is that each step appears to have about an 8% error ratio. Hmm. And that's wow. not surprising at all to me. When I worked on Wall Street in the 90s, before what they called straight through processing, every morning about 13% of Wall Street trades were incorrect. And there was a three-day settlement to make sure that we could fix as many of those trades as we could. Unfortunately, in healthcare, you don't have a do-over if you give somebody the wrong drug, right? With a trade, it's just money. You can always reverse it. But with healthcare, you don't have a do-over. You want to get it right. But what they found similarly was in each step, it introduced about an 8% error rate. And what does that mean? It means that somebody said they were selling box number one, and it was going to go to McKesson. And when it got there, it wasn't box number one. It was box number two or maybe something totally different. Whatever it was, people couldn't get their paperwork together. And we saw FDA pilots where they were seeing samples that were running close to 50% at the end were not the boxes they were supposed to be. Now, again, it doesn't mean you're getting the wrong drug, but it does say a lot about your ability to decide what to do about a recalled drug. The recalls were the craziest things I've ever seen. Incredible number of steps. You'd think you could just pull it right off the shelf, but no, it's a lot of work to figure out where the recall drugs are, which lot it was, whether you've got one, and it involves a lot of work with a flashlight on your hands and knees. So it's a very tricky area. The error rate is very high when you try to push the paper through the system. Your viewers might have seen when they were kids the I Love Lucy where she's packing the, the uh, chocolates with ethyl on the end of the factory line and stuffing them in a brassiere. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's what you might imagine is causing these errors is that, you know, you, the first 12 boxes are supposed to go in carton number one and the second 12 boxes, 13 through 24, are supposed to go through carton number two, but they get a little jumbled and they keep getting jumbled as they go through the system.
Yeah, and after a certain point, it's just complete mayhem and chaos. So we want right. to prevent, prevent That's that. the last mile in a nutshell. It's a jumble. Got you. Can you describe you know, Ledger domains, services, products, platforms, and their technology stacks? So I know you have multiple layers here. So if you want to kind of take each one by one, we could talk sure. about that. Sure. We're very, very fortunate, as are everybody today. You know, We all benefit from a couple of things that have really changed our lives. One of them is open source software. Um, and we run on tar- top of what's called Hyperledger Fabric, but that means that we run at Amazon Web Services. We run on containers. Um, we use a variety of open source tools. And then we stack about a million lines of code from Hyperledger Fabric right on top of that. And so it means that I've got hundreds and hundreds of other contributors checking all that code every day. I've got a group of people at IBM, a group of people at all the big banks, all looking at this stuff, making sure it runs right. And it's really a nice community to be part of. And I'd like to name check the Linux Foundation that supports all this. And so you know you've got a terrific stack to sit on top of. Then we write about another 400,000 lines of code on top of that to manage the things that we want. And then finally, which is just as important, we leverage big ecosystems like Apple iPhone. And so if we use Apple as a client, there's a lot of things that they do for us free of charge to support all the apps that we run on Apple. And so if we do a specialty app for um you know, the clinical supply blockchain working group, we can run it on Apple. We know that everything's going to run the right way. We can use all their testing tools running on top of our stack. And then our stuff, which does a lot of important and cool stuff, we don't have to do everything. And so it's nice to be able to use these products. Um, Instabug is one I'd call out. Uh, It's a terrific little company out of Cairo, Egypt. And when you shake your phone, they'll ask you to submit a bug for us. And it's a really important tool for us. Remember that what we're trying to do is to run a lights out environment, highly secure. I'm not supposed to know the drugs you're taking. I'm not supposed to know the drugs you're buying. I'm not supposed to know the drugs UCLA is dispensing. I'm not supposed to know Biogen serial numbers. How can I do that without all this spyware that my competitors use? Right, you know, these right. web 2.0 companies are spying on every keystroke. They probably are watching you through your camera. We don't want to do that because this information is too sensitive for us to see. Right, and so how do we do that? We need tools like Instabug to help you help us, so you can say, "Hey, it's Ray. We're not seeing the scan that we looked at, or we need a new, you know, package insert. Something's not right. Blah blah blah." And then we can fix it without spying on you. I think it's great that, you know, Ledger Domain is putting privacy-preserving technology at the forefront of its um, technology stack. I think that's really important and something that the whole crypto blockchain ecosystem has been, you know, talking about for many years now. And it is something that I think the Web 2.0 folks and, like, the popular culture is just starting to recognize this, this problem we have with data privacy. So I find it really interesting. Yeah, you're 100% right. It's still something that our partners and prospects and clients are digesting a bit, though. Um, The way we think about it is, you know, you probably remember at school, there was a janitor who had a big ring of keys that could get into any room, including the principal's office. And 
probably you live in an apartment building now where there's a maintenance man again who has this big ring of keys who can get into your apartment anytime he wants to and that's a very 1960s kind of thing that you know just doesn't feel right to me anymore but in the it area and in like for instance pharmaceutical supply chain there's still a lot of vendors that have all the keys they have the janitor's key ring and they're walking around with it and you're sort of like okay i get why that made sense when drugs cost five dollars mm-hmm. now you've got a drug that we focused on hundred and twenty thousand dollars a vial there's new drugs coming out four million dollars a vial do you really want you know, Bob walking around with a keychain and knowing where all that stuff is going, you know, I think the temptation is probably too great for a lot of people. And I don't think we should even have that kind of information floating around. You know, I, I don't, you know, I don't buy into this argument that, you know, we shouldn't have secrets. I think people should have their privacy. People should have their dignity. People should have their respect. Mm-hmm. And not everybody needs to know everything. You know, and I think that that's an important thing that we're all learning together. Um, but it is hard to live up to it, even in the blockchain world. The tools are there, um, but you'd be surprised how often people want to put a back door in. Yeah, I can imagine that. Um, how are some of those conversations going? Because this is going to involve a lot of change management, not just with a certain company or groups of people, but really a whole industry. So what have you seen to be an effective way to communicate with these uh, people who don't quite understand the need for privacy yet? You know, I think that the endpoints understand the need for privacy. The people, the vendors and the people who've traditionally been in the middle of things view it as a pain. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, you know, are people, you know, who are the buyers going to insist on privacy and are regulatory um, bodies going to enforce it? And you know what? We're going to have a really, really big test. And I think by the time your webcast is published, we'll already know the answer. You can splice it in. Um, But Californians go to the polls uh, on Tuesday for Cal Privacy 2.0, which raises the bar. And California is leading the nation on the privacy side. Um, And it's fascinating because obviously they have a huge Web 2.0 industry. Mm -hmm. Um, The Facebooks and the Googles of the world probably have a slightly different view of what privacy should be and could be. Um, But if this one passes, um, it's going to be big. In the healthcare space, there's some belief that the federal government has preemptive rights over a state law. Um, But I think all of us understand which way the wind is blowing. And, you know, we want to skate to where the puck is going. uh, And we want to be a privacy leader. And I think that other people want to be seen in that light as well. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. With the passing of California's ballot measure, Proposition 24, or the California Privacy Rights Act, CPRA, the state has become the country's leader in data privacy legislation. CPRA adds to California's existing law, the California Consumer Privacy Act, which gives Californians the power to know what data businesses collect about them and prevent businesses from selling that data to anyone else. 
the new CPRA law would close some legal loopholes in the CCPA. Proposition 24's provisions give Californians the ability to tell businesses not to use certain categories of sensitive information, including race, health, religion, location, sexual orientation, and biometrics. It makes more explicit that do not sell includes data shared between companies. It triples fines for the violations if the affected consumer is younger than 16 years old. The new measure also makes it very difficult to weaken the law through additional amendments, though any amendments that strengthen it can pass with a simple majority. Finally, it provides funding for a privacy protections agency that would be in charge of enforcing privacy laws. While Proposition 24 had several supporters, including the NAACP of California, a handful of state politicians like Andrew Yang, and privacy advocates and experts, including Shoshana Suboff, it also had its opponents. Most notably, the American Civil Liberties Union of California was very much against it, saying it actually weakens parts of the CCPA and citing concerns that it allowed companies to charge consumers who opt out of having their data sold or shared more than those who don't. This, the ACLU argued, means people with lower incomes will have less access to privacy protections than people with greater assets. The digital civil liberties nonprofit, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, for example, said the measure was too much of a mixed bag to take a position. Overall, the passage of the CPRA will drive more interest in privacy-preserving technologies that decentralized ledger technology can potentially offer our society. Over time, I believe people will appreciate the importance of their data privacy, and our laws will be made to fit the people's will for better consumer data protections. You can find a link to this article in the show notes. And now, back to our interview with Ben Taylor, CEO of Ledger Domain. Yeah, and... You know, it, when you talk about privacy, a lot of the concepts of personal or decentralized identity also come up. So what have you seen in the identity field um, as of late? There is a lot going on, and I don't think that any of it is settled yet. Um, I think that one of the harder things in the healthcare space is is that many of the privacy tools like, say, the DEA's CSOS system, CSOS for ordering opiates, is managed by the government. And I don't know if we've ever gotten a clear accounting of how many break-ins they've had. Um, by the same token, many private vendors in this space are using 25-year-old crypto tools. And I don't think they've ever reported how many problems they've had. Um, but when you see stuff like the Twitter break-in mm -hmm. that we've all seen, um, I think you know that, you know, privacy is an area where you need continuous improvement. And I think people are getting that. We're working right now with a cross-industry group on a project called XATP. We're not ready to talk about it yet. We're right in the middle of things. But in that particular tooling, what we're trying to do is to make sure that each of the participants controls their own membership and their own keys. So you're using PKI, but you hold it yourself. And again, I think Apple's done a great job of providing some tools for that with Secure Enclave and other things. 
Um, but all of these things are what we call old wine in new bottles. You can reconfigure um, traditional PKI tools um, to provide a very attractive result. I think what you alluded to, which probably only a few of your viewers know, with um, distributed IDs, is there's a next generation of tools on the horizon where people will be able to manage their own wallets um, in a totally independent fashion. I think that's very, very exciting for the consumer market. For the markets we serve, I like to think of it more as a triangular interplay where, let's say, Walmart is managing a Walmart pharmacist. The WeFlink think the Walmart pharmacist should hold their own key, but they're provisioned by Walmart, and then Walmart can block them if they leave Walmart's employee or something, they have some reason to do so. And at the same time, the system, you know, whatever their network they're part of can block Walmart or the employee if they see something going on or quarantine result. So it's more of a triangle there. And I think that the distributed ID world is still not quite there yet on what I'd call enterprise level systems, but it's very, very exciting. We see a lot going on there. And I think we'll continue to see a lot. I think what we've seen and you alluded to is that the blockchain space now is bifurcating into more of an identity area and more of a transactional area. And I think that it's a watch this space kind of thing. Got but it. I'd be excited to share more with you uh, later on in the year. Yeah, I'm interested in this XATP uh, app you're talking about. Can we actually talk about KitChain and Bruin Chain just so the audience knows what you've already kind of accomplished with those platforms and uh, talk about the UCLA pilot project too. Sure. So what I would say is that if you look at it from the surface, kit chain, which is all about managing clinical supply kits. Mm -hmm. So with clinical supplies, we talked about, you've got the active, you've got the placebo, you've got a variety of other things. And in this new, in this new COVID world, you also tend to ship your PPE gowns and everything all in one big kit. Mm -hmm. So the kits, you have to manage the kit and you manage the pieces of the kit. On Bruin Chain, which we named after our first um, partner, uh, UCLA Health, that was for the commercial supply chain. And that's where we worked with the FDA uh, pilots to try to come together around a solution for the commercial supply chain. Underneath the covers, there's a subtle difference that I would want to highlight. We talked about this earlier. Bruin Chain is a pull system. What that means is that you take the drug that's in your hand and you scan it, and then you try to figure out where did it come from? How do I feel about it? But because the drug's in your hand, you're kind of proving the custody, and you don't have to worry as much about the fact that maybe it's not what you were supposed to get. KitChain is a more traditional push system. And the push system is that, you know, if Biogen is going to do a clinical study, they're going to mail out this kit to say Memorial Sloan Kettering. So Memorial Sloan Kettering is going to get an advanced ship notification. And then they're going to open it up and they're going to say, yes, this is what we're looking for. We think that that's a good way to do it on either side. But as these systems evolve, we're going to have pull and push and everything, which is what you're used to with the hurly-burly of, of a Wall Street trading system. Again, when it comes down to the commercial supply chain, 
the main focus is that not only that it works, but is it be interoperable with other systems and you've got a lot of players. On the clinical supply system, you tend to think about it supporting one clinical study at a time and you gradually aggregate them up. But it's a very sort of laminated look and feel as it were, because again, there's no reason for anybody to understand very much about a Biogen clinical study, except for Biogen and its sites. Okay. So it's a different kind of data model, a little bit of a different set of interactions. And those are the difference. But otherwise, in each case, at the current level, we're focused very much on GS1 uh, compliant barcodes on the side of these things, using them like the handles on a coffee cup to track them through the supply chain. The question is, is who's responsible for generating the initial message and who sort of responds and says, I caught it. Interesting. Very cool. So, you know, oftentimes a lot of companies get questions like, what is your business model? And I feel like it's so different in the blockchain world because really the model is about building a network and community. And then in that way, you can eventually um, have like a revenue cycle that that can be meaningful. So I would like to ask you, like, what is Ledger Domain's business model? Yeah, so what I would say is that we expect, I think IBM expects, a lot of people expect, um, something that looks a little bit like Wall Street, where the basic transactional layer is going to border on free, mm -hmm. um, and the value-added services that people need are going to be what's going to be the monetizing driver. Um, and so if you think about the drug industry, it's probably going to be the most expensive thing that they do is to actually print a barcode or buy an RFID tag for that particular drug. So probably today it's seven cents to print and manage a barcode. It's probably over 20 cents to uh, encode and track an RFID tag. And so the actual tracking and the labor is what's important. The blockchain and the systems that support it are actually relatively cheap compared to that. The question is, what kind of analytics are people going to want to get out of that over time? So the way to think about it compared to so what we were used to on Wall Street is that the blockchain is going to support something that looks like a Bloomberg system that enables you to do all these analytics and manage all these processes. Um, but the actual trading of the stock, as you now know, know if you have a, an account at Fidelity, quite often they'll say the trading is free. I think we're going to get there much more quickly. It took, it took uh, 250 years for people to get there on the New York Stock Exchange. I think uh, for uh, the drug supply industry, it'll take 250 days. <laughs> yeah, this technology is growing quite exponentially. So I, I would agree with you there. Who are some of your major company partners? I know we've talked about a few already, but do you have any additional ones you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I would say that the two people that we're most simpatico with are IQVIA, um, who is the world's leader in clinical research and um, also uh, pharmaceutical data. They're terrific people. Uh, we find a lot of opportunities for mutual interest. We work together on a lot of things. And, and we find them to be very helpful because of their incredible domain expertise and their longer-term view of the industry. 
Another group that might surprise you is Splunk. And uh, Splunk, as you know, is a, a very successful company in network management and data analysis. A lot of people think of them as the king of the logging tools. Um, but one of the things to think about is that IoT turns, the Internet of Things turns everything into a network element. And that's a good way and it's a good model for looking at things. And so Splunk is another group where we find a lot of opportunity for mutual interest. They've done a lot of work in blockchain. Um, and uh, we find a, that we have a lot to talk about with them. So I think those are two of the more forward-thinking organizations that we know of and talk to. Um, but you'd be surprised, inside of almost every big company, there's some crypto uh, zealot or some blockchain fan that's making a difference there. This has been a real grassroots kind of thing inside of these companies. We get a lot of surprising calls um, from companies that other people might think of as dodgy, but you'd be surprised what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I had no idea Splunk was into blockchain, actually, so that's really interesting to, to learn about. So, you know, having spoken to so many people in this space, what would you say the biggest barriers to blockchain adoption is currently in healthcare? Well, you know, I mean, blockchain in a way is a little bit like the fax machine. You know, if you have a fax machine, you're by yourself and you don't have anybody else to send a fax to, it's not very useful. So there's going to be a network effect here. I think people understand that. I think it's going to catch on. And when it does, it's going to be big. Uh, nobody wants to be the last to the party. But you can see why nobody wants to buy the first fax machine either. Right. And so, you know, what we see is... You know, that's why it's easier to talk to someone like an IQVIA that can think about, you know, doing an entire clinical study of size um, and, you know, work with everybody. Uh, the other trick, surprisingly, is uh, it's very easy to scan a barcode with an iPhone. Mm -hmm. And so if you've got an environment that's iPhone rich, um, those tools are very easy to manage. Um, whereas if you've got a group that's very IBM laptop centric still, um, you know, it's a little bit more capital for them to hook in, you know, scanning guns and stuff like that. So you'd be surprised, but, you know, certain sort of investments that people have made for other reasons are what sets the stage for this. And so clearly compliant, regulatory compliance is a big, big deal. And I think this Cal privacy thing is going to hit like a ton of bricks. You've mentioned the iPhone and the iOS platform many times, actually. Do you feel like, you know, Android and other service, other sorts of platforms on mobile are not as good or, you know, don't have as much privacy preserving technology in them? What's, do you have a preference towards Apple for any reason? You know, I don't want to overstate it. Um, I think that, um, there are a lot of terrific tools in the Android area as well. It's not quite as monolithic. Um, so if everybody had a Samsung phone, that would be great. But in certain organizations, if they've decided to go with Apple, then everybody's on the same system. And they also have these tools where they can brick all the iPhones uh, at the push of a button. Um, and, you know, it, I think pharma is an area where they've got a little bit more of an Apple focus. Don't know why that is. Probably some historical reason that none of us has lost the mist of time. Um, but no, I think the Android system is equally good. 
Um, in terms of, I mentioned Apple Secure Enclave. Mm -hmm. I think they have done a lot of work in this area. I think they're perhaps, um, you know, one of the leaders. But Intel uh, has their SGX Enclave as well. So it's not unknown in other areas. I think it's just a question of getting to that critical mass. But the idea is, if you believe, as we do, that you want your users to to generate and hold their own keys, meaning they keep the private key themselves and they try not to access it, um, then, you know, because you don't want it floating around by accident. I think Apple's done some very nice work there, but I think Intel has as well. Interesting. Okay. So this is another question from one of my listeners, and they asked, how does running a hedge fund inform the way you approach the blockchain world? So I know that you, um, you've you been running so foreseen capital for quite some time now. So how would you answer that question? Well, I was always a technology and software investor. But what I would say is that, you know, on Wall Street, you have certain expectations about uptime. You have certain expectations about, you know, quality of service. You have certain expectations about being able to trade all the time, anytime. Um, and I think that those same expectations are going to be present on the blockchain side. So essentially, you're bringing, you know, Wall Street style expectations to everybody. And, you know, so we have a sense uh, that we try on people for in terms of how we manage and deliver that. It's interesting, almost in every case, uh, you'd be surprised people become unhappy with us hmm. very quickly. I'm reminded of the story of the guy who was on the very first airplane ride with Wi-Fi and they lost service halfway through the plight and people were very upset. And then he was reminded because this was the only Wi-Fi flight in the world, right? But people get, ex get used to having high expectations and they keep them. And so for us, I think what we're accustomed to from our background is the high expectations, knowing that they're going to be there. Um, and when we say something is going to be up, it better be up, you know, and there's a, it's a no excuses culture. Interesting. Thank you for answering that. I have another one from a listener, actually. It says, one of the biggest issues with inventory management today is the accuracy. Deviation from accuracy is typically derived from procedural error. Does Ledger Domain have any plans to provide solutions to this issue, such as error management when a piece of inventory skips steps? Yeah, so that's 100% right. We've covered part of that already in terms of saying it's 100% you know, of the time you see 8% errors on every step. You know, It's kind of unbelievable. Um, so there's two things that you're talking about there that I think are super important. Number one is when you use the pull system and you say, I've, what I've got in my hand is the real thing. I think that's a breakthrough of ours that's very helpful. I think the other issue is we've got this, uh, you know, approach in Bruin Chain, which we think is very important as part of the process, which we leveraged the FDA's original good idea, which was quarantining product and took it to the next level. And so the idea is that in our system, every drug that arrived at UCLA Health was quarantined until all the checks were made. 
and it essentially had a virtual quarantine around it at the unit level all the way through. We were still able to move it through to the doctor, but the doctor was suggested that he did not administer any quarantine drugs um, and that he waited until all the checks were made, including his own check, which was the physical check of the product. Hmm. So for us, the angle is to be able to, one, you know, focus on the poll, two, be able to quarantine, and then the third one, which you're talking about, very important, is uh, reporting a problem and resolving a problem. And so, you know, if something isn't getting out of quarantine because you have some concerns, you need to escalate those privately. There's a, a lot of concern in the industry that you're going to have all these, you know, false alarms. So the trick is to escalate it uh, privately and say to from the pharmacist to their boss and say, hey, this doesn't look right to me. Then the boss sends a private message to the company and says, hey, what are you thinking? What's going on here? And then it gets reported to the FDA at the right time and place once people feel strongly that, hey, this isn't our drug. It's something else, something that shouldn't be here. Um, and so it's the opportunity to flag all of these things gets made and you have these escalating notifications that gradually get to the point where it's like, hey, this is the real deal. Finally, the fourth point, and I think you talked about this a little bit uh, in, your, uh, in your last interview, is you apply uh, AI and deep learning to cluster these negative events. And so, you know, once is bad, twice is tells you something for sure is bad, right? Yeah. A lot of weird things can happen once. Um, but when you cluster these bad events, that tells you that probably some agent in the system is up to no good. How do you feel like automation is going to impact all of this? Because I feel like the errors that we're seeing now, a lot of them are from human error, right? And then through ro robotics and automation, we're going to have less and less human interaction with the, the drugs, with the... Uh, downstream supply chain so do we inherently think that it's just going to get better over time through robotics um i think that robotics or or things like that are going to be part of this overall process but you know you've got to give these various tools the inputs that they need um and so yes i believe when you go from human uh, interaction where people are manually typing stuff in and moving around paper and you use a barcode to pull the number off, I think you're going to find that there's going to be a ton of improvement. But I think that when you move from barcodes to RFID, I think mm -hmm. there's going to be even more improvement. You know, And so as an example, um, with these dual mode RFIDs that are coming out, they're just around the corner, a little bit expensive right now. Um, but we've used them. They're terrific. Hmm. And so essentially what you can do, you can read the um, GS1 compliant code, which is now not a barcode, but it's just a code on an RFID. You can read it with your iPhone or you can also read it from a distance with a dedicated reader, right, from 10 feet away. And in that case, you could track 50 of them, 1,000 of them at a time. And you also track them as they left the zone that they weren't supposed to leave, right? So you've seen these like tools. A fence, that, like a exactly, geofence sort of thing. They beep, beep, beep when you steal uh, uh, something at a store mm -hmm. or somebody walks out without paying. 
that's, a, that's the same basic technology. So these things are becoming more and more available where you can geofence these valuable things and really be on top of it. And at the same time, tap them and know exactly what you, you're holding in your hand. All of these things, uh, I think, are tremendous aids to help people. Hmm. And, you know, you can decide um, what it is you want to do. Um, I think it's a, uh, you know, you've got to, the perfect is sometimes the enemy of the good, right? So I think the trick is, you know, get the barcodes working, get the RFID working on the most sensitive stuff like cell and gene therapy or super expensive drugs. Um, and just keep pushing this progress through. And I think the way to think about it is, you know, the healthcare workers are incredibly dedicated. They're going to be doing this stuff for a long time. I don't think we're putting them out of work. I think that we're helping them focus on their patients and the patient's outcomes. Right. We're kind of offloading some of the work that they do that's more uh, tedious, things that they don't want to do, actually. Um, you know, they don't want to sit around tracking barcodes all day. I don't think anyone really wants to do that. Correct. Correct. And so with, with the, you know, in the UCLA pharmacy, we want the pharmacist to be able to focus on side effects that they're going to be looking right. at in the package inserts, looking at the med guides, doing what they need to do to add value, um, and not so much, uh, you know, doing the paper chase of recalls. Let's talk a little bit more about Ledger Domain and just the company culture there. How would you actually describe your company culture? No. Yeah. You know, that's a, an incredible question, I think, for everybody at this point. I think uh, right now we're all undergoing a learning process as a result of COVID. I think it's um, changing the way that we all work together. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's true of Ledger Domain. It's true of everybody. You have to get the most... Um, out of your people because you're not necessarily going to find new employees quickly. Right. Uh, you need to make sure that everybody's sort of working together, that they're happy. Um, and I, I would say that right now uh, the team is working together very, very well, even though we're not seeing each other in person. Um, and I, I, where I'm is it based? Ledger domain. Where is the, the com company is actually based in Las Vegas. Okay. Um, but Many of our, our employees are all over the world now. So in, we start in the morning, and Alex is in Nova Scotia. Uh, Victor's in Orinda, California. Um, and uh, we end our day with uh, Ben Nichols in, uh, in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a, it's a funny process. We've been working together for a while. It makes sense to us. And it's nice to have different people in different time zones to cover our partners and customers. Uh, but at the same time, you know, these newer tools, you know, they can be very tiring. And, you know, you have to do your check-ins to make sure that that everybody's feeling good about their work and what they're doing. It's a, it's a challenge. But uh, the, again, as I said, people have really worked very hard to, to keep their relationships good and, and keep their relationships with our customers and partners good. Yeah, and I think that's something all of us are learning in 2020. So it's <laughs> definitely... It's amazing. <laughs> yes, it's incredible. What would you say is you know your outlook for 2021 in terms of ledger domain services announcements? What are you, you know, looking to accomplish? Yeah, as you're talking, and just to remind our viewers, you know, we're the day before the election. We're coming into it here. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that I have a really clear crystal ball on how, what the coming year is going to bring. 
for us at Ledger Domain, I would say that our um, sales leads, our funnel, if you want to call it that, has probably doubled in as a result of COVID. They were getting a lot more inbound calls from people that we wouldn't have thought of as prospects before. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's harder, I think, to really, you know, go all the way to bright in this environment and really build great customer relationships from a distance. Mm-hmm. We're very accustomed to going to Westwood to see UCLA Health, going down to the pharmacy, which is the size of a Costco and walking around with them and really looking at everything in person, trying to figure this stuff out from a distance is a little trickier. So, uh, you know, it's my hope. Uh, I think it's everybody's hope uh, that we have sort of a break and vaccines are working and and by the summer things kind of return back to normal. Uh, but I'm not super optimistic. For us, as we talked about earlier, we're very excited about some of the things that we're delivering on the identity and authentication side. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the U.S. government sees the ATPs, authorized trading partners, as a legal class of people who are allowed to participate and how we serve them and how we get them onboarded is quite important. Uh, we need to make sure we solve that together in a way that's you know, privacy preserving. Uh, and then on the uh, transaction side, it's really a question of, to your point, as the supply chain gets stretched, I think the phone's gonna be ringing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that makes sense, I think. Um, and you mentioned you know, the vaccines being part of um, you know the uncertainty for 2021 what do you think is likely to happen do you think that we'll have enough vaccines for everyone by the end of next year like because you know everyone's hearing different things but you're closer to the to the action what would you say you know i don't know that that i have a more informed in person impression than others my impressions are that if all of the vaccines that are in late stage development were approved, I think we're still only looking at 700 million vaccines next year. And by my math, if you say that there's going to be two shots, meaning for a course, so for a person, you need two doses. If if that 700 million relates to doses, that says that you can only hope to inoculate 350 million people. Right. And there's 7 billion people in the world. <laughs> that and also we're not sure if immunity with the vaccine is going to be permanent or temporary either. So there just hasn't been enough time to, to do that testing. So, yeah, so I would say that, you know, we've seen some amazing, amazing work. We've seen people like Pfizer move very, very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, we've seen newer companies like Moderna move very quickly. We've seen the U.S. government with Operation Warp Speed move very quickly. Um, but I think there's some limits to what we can expect. And so I would sure like to imagine that we're inoculating most of the first line healthcare workers by the summer. Um, but I don't know if that really changes the outlook for the man on the street, you know? And so for my kids, you know, I think 2021 is going to be another year of, you know, staying close to home and keeping your head low. Yeah, I know it's it's not just you know our health being impacted, but our, our entire social foundation that's being altered here. Exactly, so it's very interesting. But you know, I think people are resilient, and I think that they've been good sports so far. 
Uh, and, you know, hopefully we'll beat this thing and, you know, move on to the next one. This will be in the rear view mirror, hopefully in a couple of years time. Yeah. And if you take a historical, like, look at this, we've been through a lot worse as human beings, as a species. So we'll be, we'll get over this eventually. I think we're right. Can you just talk about some of your maybe favorite decentralized ledger technology projects that are, you know, doing important work, but not necessarily your own? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the one that I've seen most recently uh, that I thought was really cool is Atomize. Um, Atomize is going to be in Greenwich, Connecticut, and they're going to sell you uh, ounces of gold and silver and platinum and palladium uh, on the blockchain. Um, I believe that my friends at IBM are behind it, and they're supported um as a sponsor by uh, Norilsk Nickel out of the Soviet Union hmm. um and we'll see if it all comes together or not but i think that for this day and age where there's a lot of interest in stores of value uh where people are concerned about um you know currency debasement uh, it's a very cute way of cutting out a lot of amorphous middle infrastructure and basically plugging you directly into a mine as a precious metals investor. Um, and again, it's a funny one because what they're doing, I think to me, what makes it cute is that, you know, you're basically using a brand new technology to uh, invigorate, you know, a 5,000 year old industry, right? So I think that's pretty cool. Um, and so we'll see that. I think the other one I've seen is for, uh, spam on cell phones in India. Hmm. Um, and so I believe they've got 800 million cell phones where they use the blockchain to decide what is you defined as a spam call. Um, hmm. I mean, that's so, a huge problem around the world. So any kind of solution yeah. to that would be totally welcome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's a cool one, but it also shows the scalability so we recently did some stuff uh, that showed that we were able to scale the entire U.S. pharmaceutical supply chain onto a single server. Um, and so and we were very proud of that work. But to do 800 million people's worth of cell phones, uh, that's really real scale. You know. Do you know what it's called? I can look it up. But, that's okay. Um, it, it gives it, uh, audience a starting point. Yeah, so it's all of the major cell phone companies in India are on, in it together. But the group that deserves the most credit is the Indian High Court that the hell upheld the uh, judgment that it had to do it, right? They were the ones that put the hard word to the industry to really deliver. And so they're the hero of the story as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and that speaks to how important regulation is in this new industry too. Exactly. Um, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin in that case? You know, it seems like you're into long-lasting value assets what what's what's your take on bitcoin you know i think that um bitcoin is on the cusp of becoming an investable asset for institutions and i think that's an important transition um i think that's happening i think it's uh, it has an air of inevitability right now mm -hmm. um i think that Bitcoin should be regarded as professionals, uh, by professionals as uh, what I would call digital aluminum. So mm -hmm. Bitcoin's a commodity. 
the price of Bitcoin should tie in to the price of electricity that's required to mine it. Okay. And so just like aluminum itself is made out of electricity and solid electricity, you know, Bitcoin is digital electricity. Um, and so, you know, it should have a certain value. It may be slightly above that value on any given Tuesday or slightly below it, but that it should somehow track to that. And it should be as a result of that, it should have, it should hold its value through thick and thin in the way that, you know, a metal or something else would. So you choose to say digital aluminum as opposed to like digital gold. I'm just wondering why aluminum specifically? Aluminum is known as a commodity that's very tied to the price of electricity. Is that just the, okay. Gold is, gold is dug out of the ground. And so you should think of gold as solid diesel fuel. Okay. So you, diesel, you should, you should use diesel, you know, it's basically going to cost you, you know, a labor and diesel fuel to dig gold out of the ground. So whatever the price of diesel is should tie out to the price of gold. All of these things should interrelate loosely. You right. know, this loose correlation, but that's how it should look. Another couple of personal questions for you. What's the most influential book you've ever read? I would say for me, the most influential book I've read is by Professor Richard Caves at Harvard. Uh, it's the game theory of uh, creative industries. And he was most interested in the way that it applied to media forms like music and things like that. But I think for any technology these days, you've got a big base of money up front to sort of develop something. And whether it's a Disney movie or a piece of software like Ledger Domains, you're putting all this money in up front. And then you have to syndicate those learnings uh, over the fullness of time uh, and manage sequels and everything else. And I think that thinking about these as game theory uh, investments and and sort of things like that are it's a very helpful way to try to think through the way that you want to manage uh, and um, incent all the participants and get alignment in these efforts interesting i have not heard of that one so i'm going to definitely check it out creative it's industries a little, a little dense but it's a great book what are your thoughts about the singularity that is supposed to happen in 2045? You know, I think that if it does happen, its effects will actually hit us a decade before. Um, yeah. And I'd say that Wall Street has already reached some kind of singularity. So in the early 90s, when I started getting involved in Wall Street, the idea was that if you could invest enough effort and get smart enough in a given stock that you could outperform other people who were buying and selling it. And that information advantage was something that you could reliably build up. And over time, um, it became clear that most people were not doing that and that just buying an index was going to put you ahead of it. Mm -hmm. In a way, saying that the index is going to be right is a type of singularity from an information standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. You basically agree, hey, it's not worth my time. And now everybody buys indexes. Even smart people on Wall Street who work hard will often dump their money into an index of a, a sub-index of a certain type to get an exposure because they don't want to figure out which, you know, uh, oil services company is going to do the best. They're bullish on oil, so they buy all the oil services ETF, right? I think these sub-singularities are going to affect more and more and more of what we do. And so, I think that, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, someone who's got so much Wall Street experience, I'm just wondering, what are you currently thinking about the current state of the market now? I mean, we're at pretty 
high highs right now um, in the midst of a pandemic and election and a lot of global uncertainty, but our stock market's still doing okay. What, what do you make of that? Well, I think it reflects the fact that uh, the Fed has come in and bought all these bonds up. They bought the corporate bonds and that's forced people out of the corporate bonds up into equities. I think in addition, a lot of people feel like bonds are, as they use the term, certificates of confiscation. <laughs> if they see you know, inflation cropping up, they would rather own something that's got a little more inflation resistance and they believe equities and say residential real estate would be that way. Um, you know, I, I have a feeling that this is all going to be a bit of a fool's errand for all of us. You know, I mean, I think that, um, you know, for the last 30 years, um, you know, we've been a little less disciplined than we could be and should be in terms of managing the U.S. dollar. Um, hmm. And I think we've bailed ourselves out a number of times. This isn't the first time. Um, and I think we're going to probably have to pay the piper a bit, whether it's higher taxes or, more inflation or something to sort of try to, you know, put ourselves on a diet. Um, but, it, you know, obviously this is one of these things that we're up for in the next election. We're going to find out together. But right now that's what people are betting on. Yeah, no, we will definitely see um, how the election impacts, not just the market, but, you know, everything really that's yes. going on right now. Ben, um, this has been a really insightful conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. Is there anything maybe I might have missed or anything else you want to share with the audience? No, Ray, this was an awesome, awesome talk. I appreciate you taking time out on your Sunday and and spending time with us. And uh, again, watch this space on the XATP and the identity side. I think there's a lot coming up in the next couple of months. Uh, and I look forward to continuing our dialogue. Awesome. Thank you for your time. All right. Bye-bye. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.